Hi everyone, welcome to Beyond the Benchmark, the EFG podcast. This is Mo Zafzel, Global Chief Investment Officer for uh, EFG. So by popular demand, we have Dan Clifton from Strategis who joined us again. So Dan, welcome. Thank you for having me back. It's great to be here. Yeah, great, great to hear. Dan, last time we spoke was actually was, was in January and uh, to, to kind of catch up with you. Obviously, a lot has happened since then. Biden's come in and he's gone straight at it, right? So maybe you could just give us the background as to what's happened. What is Biden's strategy at the moment to to kind of, I guess, force through his agenda? Yeah. So first, thank you for having me. I can remember uh, at the very beginning when you had me on <laughs> in the throes of the pandemic and the presidential election happening. What a crazy year last year was. It was really But was. You know, ultimately, we had an election. Joe Biden won that election. He thought for two months after the election that he was going to be facing a Republican Senate based on the election results. And then on January 5th, the Democrats won not just one, but two special elections in Georgia, traditionally Republican state. And I think that really changed the calculus in Biden's head that this is a bigger mandate. Something happened over that 60-day period that voters were saying, we want more stimulus, we want a more aggressive government. And he's saying, look, I'm here. I waited 44 years to get to this place. I'm going to use every opportunity I can to do as much as I can and really see if I can get many of the changes that presidents before him tried to get were unsuccessful. And so where does that start? It starts with a pretty limited mandate. That mandate was get COVID under control and get the economy back to pre-COVID levels. And what Biden's saying is, if I succeed in those two areas, then I will be able to get a larger mandate on other issues that will be associated with that. And so where are we today? Biden made a decision that he wanted the maximum amount of fiscal policy stimulus in 2021. And let me put this in context. We're going to do more fiscal stimulus this year with a declining unemployment rate and a massive U.S. economy reopening in front of us than we did last year when we had a 15% unemployment rate and states were closing down, states were closing down their economies. And so you pull all that together, you are massively levering up the U.S. consumer at the exact time that they can actually go out and spend money on things. And they're going to need clothes to buy to do that. And they're going to want to go on trips. It is going to lead to the best economic data of our lifetimes, uh, probably. And you're looking at a president that every other president is in envy of right now. 10% GDP growth, a million jobs a month, stocks at an all-time high. And we are really a 50-50 country. And he's got a plus or minus, a plus 14% approval rating right now, which means that he has more political capital at this point than any president that we've seen over the last 50 years. But he's going to need that because the easy part is over. Passing more stimulus for COVID-19, you know, that, that was all set. Now you're trying to increase spending on infrastructure, increase spending on climate change, increase spending on social policy, and paying for that with tax increases on individuals and corporations. It's going to be a much more different political fight in Washington 
than we saw over the COVID aid package in February. And so that's really where we stand right now. He's gained, Biden's gained the political capital, but now he's going to be forced to spend that political capital down if he wants to get a more ambitious agenda through this Congress. So in terms of priorities, his priorities, if you like, of you know, what's the highest priority and what is the, the priority that everyone's talking about, but actually is probably not high priority for him. Yeah, that's a great question. And so he came in and said, look, I got to get COVID under control. You're actually seeing the U.S. have its lowest level uh, share of world cases uh, today. I think we're about 5% uh, of world cases. Vaccinations are declining pretty significantly here because we're trending very similar to the way the U.K. You had a massive wrap-up, and then it kind of slowed down. And so now we're moving away from COVID, and you're seeing it just come up less in conversations, and we're now in the post-COVID. What Biden's saying is his priority is to now build a stronger foundation for the U.S. and global economy moving forward. So that's going to be more infrastructure spending, how do you build a clean energy economy? And, and I will tell you this, no president in the United States has ever spoken and acted on climate change like Joe Biden did. And you're going to see that this is going to be the big priority. And you say, well, what do you mean by that? Companies being forced to disclose their carbon emissions through SEC filings. Uh, bank stress tests for climate risks as part of the Federal Reserve uh, ESG funds being allowed in workers' 401k retirement plans. This is a whole-of-government approach where every agency is now being tasked, how does your agency line up to climate change? And the centerpiece of all this is really this next fiscal package that he's proposing. And I'll just give you this context. He's proposing $110 billion of additional spending for highways, roads, and bridges. Every highway, road, and bridge. Every water pipe gets $100 billion. He's proposing $172 billion for electric vehicles. So almost double what we're doing on roads and bridges, almost double what we're doing on water pipes. He's saying, let's get to electric vehicles itself. And this is going to be that priority. Build back better and how you build a clean energy economy moving forward. So that's what people are focused on. You ask a more interesting question about what is happening behind the screen that maybe people are not as focused on. And I would break this up into a couple of, into a couple of categories. The first is when you look at these bills, they say, Oh, this is COVID or this is infrastructure, but there's a lot behind those bills that can make it through massive spending for education. I mean, you're talking about an education budget, which is probably about 40 billion, 50 billion a year in the US at the federal level. He's like doubled that in one bill and then quadrupled it in another bill. So, and now he wants more infrastructure money for schools, right? So education, the COVID package was an undercover healthcare bill. We have seen about a 10, 11% increase in the number of people who've signed up for what we call Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act just since Biden's been president. These are huge numbers to go from 9 million to 10 million is a huge leap in a short period of time. And so that's happening behind the radar screen. And third, it's about unionization. And I think this is the big secret for Biden. He's trying to figure out how to get more unionized workers. So you look at something like Uber and Lyft and DoorDash, 
yesterday, the labor secretary announced that they were going to reclassify those independent contractors as employees. You're going to see a big push for uh, changes in how unions can or how workers can organize. And it's just something that most people don't take seriously because unionization rates have come down so much. But it feels like, and it feels like, we are moving into a pre-1981 United States. And I'll let people say whether that's good or bad. I'm just being the analyst and telling you that. And I say that because I watched Jay Powell on Wednesday give his after Federal Reserve press conference. He says, I'm going to keep rates low and inflation doesn't scare me. And then on Wednesday night, Joe Biden got up there and announced the 1968, 1969, and 1976 tax plan today to pay for all this spending and all these goals that really were policy pre-Ronald Reagan in 1981. So maybe that's what you need in an environment where worker incomes have been stagnant, uh, but it feels like the framework is changing here. And a lot of this is being driven by geopolitics of what's happening with China, the deglobalization effort that's happening. And if we do have to deglobalize, do we need more domestic-based capacity so that's how all the pieces of the puzzle fit into one. So do you think it is as joined up as that? <laughs> it sounds very, very joined up. Um, or do you think this is, I guess, bits and pieces coming together? I mean, you know, talking about the unionization thing that um, you know, we saw the the yep. uh, the Amazon case and the fact that the yep. workers in Alabama didn't didn't go ahead with with unionization, that must have been a bit of a kick of the teeth in the, in the, in terms of the thinking there. Yeah, and, and let me say California, which is a right, pretty yeah, yeah. left of center state, voted to overturn yeah. that classification, right? Now, if this happened in like a conservative state like Texas, we'd say, oh, it was Texas. It was California. Yeah, yeah. And then you give the workers in Alabama for Amazon the ability to vote, and they voted two to one against unionization. So there are clearly going to be limitations to that. That's number one. Number two is um, getting these plans enacted. I can give you the grand vision, but getting these plans enacted are going to be very difficult. And what I've been arguing is that the strategy to get this infrastructure climate change bill done is as clear as mud right now. Are we going to do a bipartisan deal with the Republicans? Well, that's one track being negotiated. Uh, is there going to be a partisan route? That's being negotiated. But it's really hard to pass infrastructure provisions through expedited budget procedures that you need to do if you're not going to do it on a bipartisan basis. And um, they're going to have to work through that. And I got to tell you, most Democrats in Washington are okay with the corporate tax rate going up from 21%, but they want it stopped at 25 And what Biden's proposing on international tax rules is probably a massive game change for U.S. competitiveness. And it's only a matter of time before Washington figures out how wide ranging this is. He's literally proposing that the U.S. tax worldwide income of U.S. companies. The largest country that does that right now is Mexico. And we can only really count four industrialized countries that do it. Um, most other countries have what's called the territorial tax system. But Janet Yellen sees this moment, post-COVID moment, very similar to the post-war Bretton Woods redesign of the international finance system. And that seems to be where they're going. I just think it might be a little bit more 
they might be biting off a little bit more than they can chew at this point, given the nature that, you know, who gets hit by these multinational taxes or semiconductors. We're in the middle of a chip shortage and sort of a battle with China over chip supremacy and biotech, which just made these wonderful vaccines that have allowed us to come back to normal a little bit faster than people anticipate. So, you know, those are going to be the political challenges of making these grand visions a reality. And they're, they're putting you on that course for that. Um, I'm not sure they're going to be fully successful in getting all that done, not even this year, but over the course of four years. Certainly is a, is a challenge. Um, in terms of the kind of um, climate infrastructure, um, obviously Europe has been much more advanced or certainly thinking about climate and the U.S. is basically maybe three or four years behind even. Um, yep. um, how is the general perception, you know, uh, from the man on the street respect to climate? Do they really care that much? Um, nope. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and where does this ultimately go if it isn't necessary? You know, if everyone's not behind it, and, and I think you, you, you very nicely talked about political capital that he has and spending that political capital, which is clearly going to happen. But is this using up for really very little gain? Yeah, so the politics of the Democratic Party have changed. The politics of the Democratic Party used to be unions, private sector unions, trial lawyers, um, and uh, government employees. And I would say that the real power has shifted here to climate activists. They are really the center point and they tend to be wealthy, highly educated and see danger in the world and want quick and fast action on this. When we poll, people aren't opposed to climate change. They're not like, oh, that's fake. You know, you, you'll get some of that, but you don't see the voting intensity. People don't come out and vote on that. It's not a vote moving issue for most voters. You know what it is? Taxes and guns and you know like there there are real vote moving issues climate change is just a low intensity issue now maybe the president can rise it up so that it becomes a bigger issue but for most people if it's not an inconvenience to them they'll support it but once it becomes an inconvenience then they'll be like well wait a minute here and so it's a balancing act. but look at what biden did he just accelerated out the number of emissions reduction goal of the United States. He's trying to get other countries to do that. And, you know, we're, we're trying to be analysts so that investors can understand what's happening on the policy front. And I just want to be clear here that the Biden administration has been very forcefully trying to move away from fossil fuels that uh, is in addition to cleaner technologies um, is that I think is behind the scenes um, going to have a bigger impact on American consumers than people would imagine. And so I think we're headed for a weak dollar period here in the U.S., particularly as Europe gets its vaccines under control, global growth begins to pick up. And, um, and when that happens, gasoline prices go up because the price of oil goes up. And on top of that, he's saying, like, let's get rid of natural gas, which is a nice kind of transition fuel that's where you got to be careful because if there's a snack pack in energy prices, that's where the American voter feels it the most. And you want to be able just to moderate that down itself. So, um, you know, in, in that sense, you know, get, giving people 
rebates to go buy a, an electric vehicle uh, may, may change the game. Right now, the U.S. is stuck at 2% of auto sales being electric vehicles. The average income of an EV buyer, electric vehicle buyer, is $80,000 of income in the United States, right? So, you know, we know who they are. And they're trying to figure out how do you make it more affordable for people. And so what they're doing is the Biden plan allows you to cash in your car, trade it in, and they give you a point of sale rebate to go out and buy an electric vehicle as a way to move it. What's interesting is that investors sort of priced all this in during the election. This is what we would talk about last year. What's happening now is that investors are starting to think, are we going to have enough materials to fill that demand? And that seems to be where the trade is going right now because you're creating all this artificial demand for electric vehicles under the Biden plan. And you know, I'm sure investors are like, hey, whatever's going to get me the cheapest car. But then you're going to need plugging stations for that. And, you know, you got to build out the infrastructure. So it's going to take us a little time to get there. In terms of um, uh, education, you talked about um, obviously huge amount of spending there presumably quite popular, um, generally speaking. Um, how do you think that sort of plays out um, in terms of, um, uh, you know, spending? Where's that spending going to be? Um, and, you know, the big debate certainly in, in circles is is uh, higher education, where there's a completely different education system that, that comes along, um, you know, similar to what we have, for example, in Germany or Europe, where it tends to be, apprenticeships you know developing how do you how do you see education developing awesome questions and i would break it up into you know college education and pre-college education COVID really exposed some of the major problems with the u.s education system both at the college and the pre-college level um the good news is that we're close to 70 percent of kids now in-person learning, but that number was below 50% eight weeks ago. And um, we've done some real damage here over the past 12 months. And so Biden's first point is we don't know what's in front of us, another pandemic, you know, we're always fighting the last war. So let's at least use some of that money to rebuild the ventilation systems in the U.S. school system. Again, we go back to that infrastructure theme itself. Number two is that what we learned is that more money really doesn't lead to better outcomes per se. There's sort of a law of diminishing return, but we at least wanna be able to use this opportunity to be able to ensure that there's no digital divide where you saw lower income uh, students didn't have the broadband to do school from home, which the pandemic required under. So you're gonna see a big investment in broadband that broadband is making sure schools are equipped with the most technology and that students have that technology that they can then be portable moving around and be able to learn, right? So it may not even be direct educational instruction. Obviously, the teachers union were big supporters of Joe Biden, especially at his lowest points in the primary. And so I would anticipate some of that money is going to flow to benefits and teachers and pensions and all that stuff as well. The community college, university level gets really interesting to us. Um, that's where you saw the real test because the private colleges would have went under 
if they couldn't figure out how to get their students back in. And they figured out how to do it. It was awesome. You know, and the other universities said, okay, well, we're going to just do it remotely, charge you the same rates, and um, maybe if you get vaccinated, we'll let you back in this September. What Biden is saying, and I think this is the heart of your question, is that he wants to make community college free to everybody. That's part of his plan that he announced last Wednesday, where he says, I want everybody to have that chance. Now, as you know, that creates some unfavorable incentives. There's high dropout rates at community college, and you're probably going to accelerate some of that. But what he's doing is he's setting up that you probably are going to need more apprenticeships. And it goes back to the whole domestic manufacturing Manufacturing is like 12% of U.S. economy. It's relatively small. We're a service-based economy. And I think he's anticipating that we're probably going to have more production here, that different skill sets are going to be needed and going for an all-the-above approach as part of that. So it's job training, it's apprenticeship, it's free community college, and it's trying to make college more affordable. The irony here is that as we make college more affordable, you're actually making it more expensive because you're subsidizing it. When you subsidize it, then the prices go up. And it's really been the failure of policymakers over the last 20 years. But what politician is going to get up there and say, I want higher prices for college? Uh, It's just not politically feasible itself. And then finally, you know, the last, you know, piece of all this with respect to education uh, is that he's really looking to clamp down on what I call for-profit education companies as well where he thinks that they're overcharging. Um, so it's multifaceted uh, in his approach. Um, in terms of kind of policy, what's, and and I was going to two, two questions before we go internationally, but um, uh, in terms of policies that surprised you that you think would never happen are likely to happen now. So uh, yeah, let, me, let me take a bigger picture on this. Five years ago, we were doing this interview right now. You would ask me about Trump's trade policy, and I'd say, you know, it's a little out there. It goes against the consensus. And, you know, he had an an advisor called Peter Navarro. Peter would say crazy things. That is the Washington consensus here today. So the world has changed, and there is very little difference between Biden and Trump's trade policy. Now you say, well, Dan, how can that be? You told me in October, this election is all about trade policy and the market is making a bet that Biden is not going to decouple from China faster than than Trump did, right? And that's exactly how the market priced in the election. And what you've seen is a rapid snapback over the last six to eight weeks of the market having to readjust. You say, well, how do you know that? What we like to look at is Vietnam relative to China. And those stock markets moved almost perfectly with Trump's odds of winning. Trump's odds of winning went up. Vietnam outperformed China. Biden's odds went up. China outperformed Vietnam. And, you know, Biden won and China went up. Vietnam underperformed. And you've had a massive repricing over the last two months in that trade. You look at something like Vietnam REITs. These are, you know, people just buying up real estate, knowing that the supply chains are probably going to start having to have a temporary location. By the way, we think India could be, wind up being the biggest winner of all this. But even on EU steel tariffs, which we have a big deadline on June 1st, if we don't have a deal on June 1st, 
the EU is going to put big tariffs on Harley Davidson's and American whiskey. And um, we're having a really hard time today figuring out what the path forward is because it looks like Biden is unlikely going to take off steel tariffs off the European Union. And, uh, you know, that's a big surprise. So the Trump and Biden trade policy is almost similar. And that, I mean, just every time I say it, I kind of like, whoa, is that true? That's number one. Number two is if you think about our conversation on January 7th, I think is the last time we spoke, 50-50 Senate, the House, right now Nancy Pelosi can lose only two votes now. So this is the closest House majority in 140 years. It's the slimmest majority in the Senate for a new Democratic president in the modern U.S. political system. And so the natural gravitation towards that is moderation and compromise. And in fact, it's been aggressively center-left, more closer to, say, Bernie Sanders than Joe Manchin. And um, Biden is going for it. That has been, you know, the second biggest surprise that I would have. And he's not shy about it. I mean, look what he did yesterday. Yesterday, he announced that he is going to uh, allow the intellectual property of Pfizer and Moderna to just be distributed for their mRNA it's always hard to say, mRNA technology for the vaccines. I mean, this is not like a, a small little change. This is a massive change. It will get no vaccines out quicker than a year. And the better strategy, if you were really worried about what's going on in the world, would be to take the U.S. stockpile and get that out quickly, which we're about to do, and two, figure out how to do an operation warp speed that we did in the U.S. globally. And he went for the, he said, no, I'm, I'm going to share the intellectual property of pharmaceutical companies. That's a massive change. And he's basically showing you that he's more center left, more aggressive, you know, and I guess this is the luxury you get at 79 years old with a 45-year storied career in Washington. Like, I'm never going to get this chance again. I'm going to do everything I can. And I've been surprised by that. Interesting. Um, I guess the, the the success of that is to be to be seen. Odds, do you think, uh, at this stage, to get what he wants? So I think there's a good chance that we're going to see uh, a boost in infrastructure spend. I think there's a good chance that taxes are going to rise in 2022 and those tax increases will be double the size of Barack Obama, George Herbert Walker Bush, Ronald Reagan, and Bill Clinton's tax increases. Those tax increases were about four tenths of a percent of GDP. Biden has proposed 1.3% of GDP. Okay. We haven't done anything like that since the late sixties. And so what I take from that, is that, you know, maybe he gets like somewhere close to 1% of GDP, which is massive, and that those tax increases are used to fund a, you know, $1 trillion uh, infrastructure package, not a $2 trillion infrastructure package. So the way I think about it is you're probably going to see 
more money for roads, more money for water, more money for electric vehicles, more money for grid upgrade, more money for broadband, more money for school infrastructure. And um, that's going to be paid for with uh, 25% uh, corporate tax rate, higher taxes on U.S. multinational income. I don't think we'll go full worldwide. Uh, I do think that you'll have a higher income, higher capital gains, higher dividend, higher estate tax. And we're going to have to go through it. And the way I explain it is the first quarter of this year was all candy and no spinach. Lots of stimulus, lots of vaccines, lots of reopening, all candy. Now we're moving into the spinach phase of the agenda where you get a little bit of candy. You're going to get a little bit more spinach. Then you're going to get candy. And you're going to have a lot of stimulus wearing off. So those are, it's a different environment once you get past that. And you say, well, you know, Dan, Americans have $3 trillion of savings, the best economic data in life. I'm just a skunk at the party. Once we hit peak growth in second quarter, you'll start to see that growth rate still strong, but the growth rate decelerating and investors will start focusing on some of this more these more spinach items. So I do think he's going to get a, a, a good portion of his agenda, but it's not guaranteed. And the way I think about it is Trump failed in the first eight months of his administration legislatively. Mm. So the market made a bet that he couldn't get tax reform done. And we looked at it and said, no, Congress needs to get tax reform done or they'll get wiped out in the midterm elections. And, you know, we made a good bet on it for most of the year, 15% probability of Trump getting tax reform. And then he got it, but people were extrapolating his failures to the future. And the reverse is happening here with Biden. He got everything he wanted in his COVID package. He muted Bernie Sanders and Joe Manchin in the same debate. I mean, it was impressive. And so now investors are extrapolating that success to something far more complicated. This is the most complicated piece of legislation I have seen in 25 years in politics. And there's an 80% probability right now that the corporate tax rate is going to be higher next year in the betting markets. Usually when I see those numbers, I say to myself, what could go wrong? Because the consensus is already there. And maybe it's not binary here where failure or success. Maybe he goes big and eventually they have to do some path of least resistance package later this year that does some extension. So I don't think anything is guaranteed in this political environment, especially as the economy improves and if interest rates are going up, there will be big questions about how many trillions more we need in spending. And I think time is his biggest risk right now because each day the economy gets better yeah that's very very interesting i think the uh, betting odds on the corporate tax is certainly something you could certainly take the other side of given how fully totally. priced it is yeah 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 that's actually very interesting um so moving I, I, a couple of other items obviously um some of the kind of more geopolitical issues that are coming up yeah. certainly around kind of semiconductors is obviously the one the one big one continued shortages, an arms race developing, you know, around the world. I, w- I would say it's not just China and the US, but it's Europe and the US and there's everybody, right? So h- how, how, do you, how do you see that sort of developing clearly um, p- 
packages are being put in place, incentives are putting in place to to house semiconductor, you know, manufacturing plants in the US. You know, how how do you see that developing um, or is it kind of fully understood, do you think? So first, let me say that um, semiconductors are the new oil, uh, if you think about it that way. And um, they're becoming a national treasure for the United States. Um, and obviously, that has very geopolitical consequences, giving the location of Taiwan Semiconductor and the importance of that company. Um, clearly, the U.S. wants to boost its domestic production. Just 12% is produced here. This is a supply chain national security issue now, and you are going to see movement to it. Let me tell you about how our analysis works at Strategus is that policymakers say U.S. multinationals aren't paying enough in taxes. We're going to put a global worldwide tax on them and we're going to get more revenue. And so we said, okay, well, which companies are most impacted by that? And we run our analysis and it's the semiconductor industry. And I say to myself, how can we be doing this? Because the chip shortage is different than the geopolitics. The chip shortage is a supply chain issue based on what just happened on COVID. And by the way, everybody tells me it's getting better. Sometimes it doesn't feel like it's getting better. Okay. And Ford Motor Company cannot sell that car if they don't have the chip for the airbag in that car. Okay. So I think the greatest risk to the bullish outlook for the U.S. economy, which is consensus here, is that the chip shortage doesn't get fixed and you start to see production really begin to slow later this year. And so we need to solve that. One of the ways to solve that is not put $7 billion of taxes on the semiconductor industry so that they can go to work off that shortage. Okay. Number two is that we are developing legislation here. And I'm going to use this word, which I don't use very often, bipartisan, which is Republicans and Democrats coming together, unified on China, unified on semiconductors. Now, we're having a debate about whether the U.S. should be adapting the tactics of Xi Jinping and creating more state-controlled, directed economy, and those issues are going to need to be worked out. But we're looking at somewhere between 50 to $100 billion to bring that semiconductor uh, production home, and that's a more mid- to longer-term type of range. But it goes back to my earlier comments on what surprised me about Biden and how trade policy changed. Clearly, they are seeing something in the intelligence reports that believe that China is likely to go into Taiwan or could go into Taiwan in the next two to six years. And um, people ask me about all the saber rattling that's going on out there, and I say to myself, well, it all comes back down to semiconductors. So uh, you got to preserve that technology the best you can and you're just seeing a more nationalist United States, uh, which is very different than the United States that the rest of the globe is used to. And now that you've gone through Trump, it's harder to say, oh, that's just Trump being Trump, because now you have an establishment politician who was for the TPP saying, hey, we need to be more nationalist in terms of our thinking and our production. It's a big change. Uh, and he's obviously looking for allies there. Uh, Europe 
signed an investment deal with uh, China on December 22nd or something, you know, right before Biden came in. And you're seeing some pushback where the EU may not be ratifying that. And I think the world is starting to look around and say, is there going to be a global coalition against China? And uh, I see it starting to build. Yeah, that certainly, certainly is starting to build. And, and I think this is where I guess China needs to find more allies potentially. Um, totally. Yeah. In, in China, the way China thinks about it, right? Because China, China met with the U.S. in Anchorage, Alaska and said, hey, when are you taking our tariffs off? <laughs> well, right, that's the wrong question. The right question is, when are you going to stop stealing intellectual property? When are you going to stop subsidizing your state-owned enterprise? When are you going to stop doing other things in your own domestic affairs, uh, you know, which is subject to debate? Once you do that, then we'll have a discussion about you know tariffs coming off. And of course, China's not going to do that. And China's point was the rest of the world, the developing world where the growth is, they're with us. They like our model, our state-driven model. And so China feels somewhat emboldened that where the growth in the world is happening is behind them and that the old coalitions of the West are dying out. And no point to you know, the financial crisis, the election of Trump, the handling of COVID, all as failures of the Western model and using that to gain leverage in the developing world. That certainly is a, certainly is a, a huge challenge as we, as we move forward. Uh, so um, you're obviously very famous for your models, um, your equity models in terms of how they predict various events. Obviously, we moved away from the election and now post-election. What are the new things you're seeing developing uh, in your in your models at the moment? Yeah, so I, I see a couple of things. Uh, the first is uh, in the last week, you are starting to see investors fully grapple around the idea of what is in the Biden international tax provision. Most people are focused on the corporate rate. Corporate rate goes up, no big deal. The international is so wide ranging. It's a whole new system. And um, you're starting to see um, more relative performance in those baskets around U.S. domestic-based companies having an advantage over U.S. multinationals. And I think that's right. It's taken a little bit longer than we thought. But the market is starting to finally understand those tax policy proposals. That's number one. Number two is we're very big on the idea that the U.S. reopening is somewhat priced in at this point. I mean, we initiated our reopening basket in April of last year. And it went to levels that we never even dreamed of when we created this. And so there may be a little bit more upside there, but it's all well known. We're very big into the European reopening right now. And we think that that's uh, where the value proposition is going to be. And we also think the dollar is going to, to weaken. But, you know, listen, I, I've been involved in many government projects in my career where they didn't start off very well. Doing the vaccine in Europe didn't start off well, but you usually do correct this over time, right? Yeah. Like we're yeah. going to figure this out, and yeah. uh, and so that's been a, a pretty good. Uh, you're starting to see that optimism grow in the model, and then the third, which I know we just got out of an election, uh, and we shouldn't be talking about future elections, but at this point, four years ago, we wrote a note. It was on May 11th of 2017, early in the Trump administration. Republicans are on the verge of losing Congress. We wrote a similar note at the same point in the Obama term 
And um, it's a little different with Biden. He doesn't invoke that same visceral negative reaction that other presidents get from half the country. But what you are seeing is um, the Republicans really do have an advantage to take over the House. And the reason that's important is you had a massive outperformance of the Democratic portfolios relative to the Republican portfolios last year, something that we talked extensively about in this form. And you've seen a really notable pickup of the Republican constituents relative to the Democratic constituents over the last month. And you say, well, what's driving that? You're starting to get these special elections. And what you're seeing is that the Republican voter is just getting much more intense. They see what's going on at the U.S. border, higher taxes, higher gasoline prices, and they're getting very intense about it. Democratic voters are like, oh, the world's normal again. The Trump guy's gone, and COVID's better, and the economy's doing well. I'm going to go back to my hobbies now. And they just sort of fade off. And now we're having special elections and you're seeing much higher ratio of voter turnout amongst Republicans relative to Democrats. And that's usually the common sign. I admit it's 18 months early. Biden is definitely a different type of president. But I think it's notable that you have energy, financials, industrials really starting to outperform here. And they are associated with traditional Republican policies. The market is smart enough to to break that in. But you know, just in, in closing on this, you know, the market is pricing in that Biden is going to get a portion of his agenda. We can see that in our infrastructure. We can see that in our green energy basket. And then um, in 12 days from now, or 11 days from now, we'll update our famous lobbying index. And our favorite time in the whole four-year cycle is May of a new president, because that's where we see the biggest turnover. And I can tell you the industries that are changing here to adjust to a new administration and all the issues, this will be a high turnover month for that, for that basket. But I think it's a good reflection and indicator that as the policy issues change, the lobbying issues change, and where companies get their earnings benefit are going to change. And, um, and I, you know, Washington is just the kind of gift that keeps on giving for political analysts, uh, regardless of whether Trump is president or not. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say that, uh, I was certainly looking forward to that um, when you do publish that um, those changes. I think uh, it's uh, it will be very interesting to see where the the new lobbying dollars are, are going and how that's changing. Um, um, I've, I've got a few ideas where where there may yep. be some changes, but uh, certainly I think that's uh, that, that's certainly interesting. One one last question actually, and. Um, um, it's around kind of cryptocurrencies. Obviously, yep. what we're seeing is a huge amount of interest, not just in the US, but globally around kind of cryptocurrencies. Any sort of policy change there? Do you think there's general ad- adoption principles? Obviously, Wall Street is now moving full speed ahead I- into that direction. Uh, wh- where do you think that um, this lands? I think policymakers in the United States are very worried about cryptocurrency. And they're worried about it for two very general reasons. The first is money laundering and the, uh, and the evasion of sanctions. Um, and number two is on the reserve currency of the dollar. Now, never say that second part, but they have to be worried about that it would erode the value of the dollar. And those two data points are very important context. And what I like to do is equate cryptocurrency 
to something called tobacco regulation. Right. And Obama won the presidency in 2009. Altria, which is a tobacco maker and was subject to many class action lawsuits, went to Obama and said, we want the Food and Drug Administration to regulate tobacco. Right. Which is, you know, own industry has to be regulated. Obama's like, yes, let's do this. And so we regulated tobacco. And all the lawsuits stopped for Altria just as they. But what was interesting is it created a barrier to entry. Nobody can compete with it. So tobacco stocks were one of the best performing set of stocks in the Obama administration, right up until those barriers to entry became so onerous that it forced alternatives to develop. In this case, it was called vaping. And eventually, Juul, which was a vaping company, started taking massive market share away from Altria. Thinking about that from sanctions, if you don't use your sanctions as the reserve currency in a very deliberative and thoughtful manner and just start whacking sanctions everywhere, eventually you're going to create such barriers to entry that people are going to figure out ways around them. And I don't know if it was intentional or not, but crypto is definitely a way around North Korea or Iranian sanctions or Russian sanctions. And that's the first concern. The second concern is that when you talk about the reserve currency, you say to people, what's the alternative? And it really isn't a good alternative, maybe a basket, but there really isn't a good alternative. Now you've created an alternative without it being a sovereign nation. And so the only two ways to deal with this, in my opinion, is you have to regulate the existing product that's out there, the crypto, and two, you have to create an alternative, which would be a digital dollar, so to speak. Powell's been downplaying the digital dollar talk, probably intentionally. But my sense is that that's where they're going. Now, I want to give you one set of context. From my understanding, in 2008, the Beijing Olympics, the current president of China, Xi Jinping, was in charge of the 2008 Beijing Games, which was really the coming out party for China. He has a personal stake in the 2022 Winter Olympics, and China's announced that they are going to have their digital currency ready for everybody to use at that. Like, they're, they're, this is not a coincidence. And they're downplaying. They're like, oh, it's no big deal. It's, no big deal. it's a huge deal. Okay? So the clock is ticking here. The U.S. has a uh, a new securities exchange commissioner. His name is Gary Gensler. He was the head of the CFTC, but he teach, taught a course at MIT on cryptocurrencies. You can watch it on YouTube. I wouldn't call him a fan of crypto, but he understands it. So I think you're going to get thoughtful regulation. Okay. And the more companies in Wall Street, as you referenced, get involved in this, you're now creating stakeholders. So it makes it harder for it to be a massive whacking. Okay. But you got to hear the stuff that comes through our desk here. Oh, 80% tax on cryptocurrencies, you know, all sorts of, stuff. yeah, that's great. You can tax it, but you still don't know who's got it. Yeah. So we're good as the tax. This is a process, but it's definitely a game changer and it's really hard to, to hit. Unlike traditional, regulatory items that the government faces. Very, very interesting. I think right. so we, we can expect lots of regulation there. 
Uh, so Dan, listen, we covered a huge amount as ever. Um, very, very interesting. Lots of food for thought, uh, for thought for us and to really um, uh, think about the next stages. Um, again, thank you so much for, for coming on and, uh, and uh, keep up the good work. Great. Thank you for having me. It's great to see you. Look forward to maybe doing this in person sometime uh, later this yeah, year. Next year. Yeah. Hopefully, fingers crossed, fingers crossed. I'm, I think uh, we'll certainly uh, welcome that. We will stop there. Thank you very much, uh, Dan, again. And uh, we will speak to you next week. Bye.